Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and reverse polarity protection. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 394. We just did like a podcast before this podcast talking about... It was great. It was great. Yeah. That, that's fairly regular for us. It's some pregame. Yeah. We talked about the uh, extra life stream that's coming up in two months. So this year, Stephen is going to join me to raise money for children's hospitals. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. We'll be releasing some news about it, but we're, we've got some fun stuff planned for it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's going to be November 4th. So that's two months away or eight podcast episodes away. Oh, my God. We should just talk about time frames and podcast episodes. Time is now 52. <laughs> that, yeah, if, if you think about it in terms of podcast episodes, it really makes things seem way closer. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think we talked about this last week where we were talking about we're like seven episodes away from 400. That's still two months. Yeah. Which is a long time. But it's not at the same time because it, it'll be here tomorrow. Yeah. I think it's one of those like looking into the future two months doesn't see, that feels like a long time, but looking backwards it's not oh no yeah yeah absolutely not i think there's like papers on that like as you get older every day is a lesser percentage of your life and that's why that happens oh yeah yeah like going out and playing when you were a kid felt like eternity being outside and it was great and now like i drive to go pick up food and i'm like oh my gosh that was an hour that i just drove to go get dinner for my wife and i like it felt like nothing yeah yeah it's interesting. Time dilation, I guess. Or time compression. Time, co time compression. Now we're getting into some weird Final Fantasy stuff. <laughs> yeah. So this week we've got some macrofab updates. We have some design questions on reverse polarity. And then if we get to it, I want to talk about what kind of 3D printer should I get? So to start, one of the things we talked about at the very beginning of this year was are New Year's resolutions. And I know it's August now. No, it's September. <laughs> it's, ah, it's, it's September. <laughs> it's only, it, no, no, no. It's only 30-something episodes, right? Yeah, it's only 30 episodes out of 52, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and one of the resolutions that I made was to start and get our new community for the podcast situated. I think basically at the beginning of October, we'll be good to go. I shared some screenshots in our public Slack channel. It basically looks like the Slack channel in terms of like there's a general, there's podcast discussion. We'll be able to have persistent threads, but it also has synchronous chat too, just like Discord or uh, Slack is, where like people can just type really quick to each other. But then there's also like typical old school form style discussion so it's kind of basically both of them in the same spot and it's search engine in indexable right it is search engine indexable so google will find all that good stuff really looking forward to it so look for the proper announcement in one month i'm probably going to email like everyone in the slack channel when we go live with it and be like hey we're shutting down the slack channel go to this link this is where the new community is at we should probably have a a landing time on that like you've you've got four weeks to switch over <laughs> four, yeah, four weeks <laughs> and then or and else. then this will just die yeah cool looking forward to it. it'll be fun yep 
And then we have some MacroFab news in terms of events. We're still doing the beers for engineers here in Houston. Check out macfab.com slash events. Um, I think we actually have one this week, which no one will hear about on the podcast because podcast will come out after that event. But I think there's another one, two after that. So go check out macfab.com slash events if you're in the Houston area. Looks like September 7th, September 21st, October 26th, and November 9th are the next dates. Cool. I was right. There was two more. <laughs> I just guessed. Yeah, the next one is at Carbuck Brewing. Carbuck is good. Yeah. Okay, so our first piece of news is I found this YouTube repair link in a car like Discord. It's kind of a weird place to find this, but apparently, according to this this person's channel's Chris Fix hyphen Germany, he fixes a lot of electronics. Go watch his videos. We'll put the link uh, to his channel. He has crazy repair skills for PCBA level repairs. But he was talking about how his company and him repair a lot of high-end GPUs, uh, graphics cards for computers. And a lot of these are dead on arrival or fail really quickly in the field. And basically what's happening is the pads underneath the big BGA for like the GPU basically. The actual GPU. Yeah. It's actually popping the pad off the PCB. So it's staying with the ball, but popping it off the, the substrate. Oh, like the bottom side of the GPU itself. Yeah. Yeah. Did he come to any conclusion of what the cause is with it? So his suggestion or his theory is it happens in shipping where the boards are not packaged correctly. And then someone just drops it and the chip is heavy enough. And it's also, you know, attached to the heat sink too where it will jostle loose the pads. That might be part of it. I do think the that's not the initial cause of it, though, I don't think. I think it's that whoever's manufacturing these boards is having a little bit too much board flex. That was going to be my suggestion, so it's preloading too. preloading the, yeah, the tension. Like the board, the balls... The I'm thinking kind of like a cross-section view in my mind. You have the, the PCB itself, then you have the solder pads and the balls, and then you have the substrate of the GPU, and then all the actual GPU stuff above it. And all of those are going to flex differently. They're going to want to flex differently, and that can cause a lot of stress on the, on the pads underneath, which could also be in shipping. You know, if, if it falls and it hits one corner of the board, these things are long enough that perhaps it flexes in an odd way and then like you said, pops the balls off. Yeah, it's it's literally popping the trace, the contact on the PCB off and ripping the trace. Hmm. I would think that would take a lot of force to do. Yes, that, that's why I was thinking that I bet you the shipping causes it, but the initial is they're probably having, because the, these chips have metal on top too, like they're metal encased. And so they're probably more rigid than the PCB is during reflow. Yeah. And so what happens is you got different contraction rates, the board slightly flexing, and Chris Fix says that it normally happens in a particular corner of the chip. Oh, okay. That's, yeah, that's not a smoking gun, but that's like, yeah, that's a symptom. Yeah, I'm thinking what's happening is the manufacturer of these boards is allowing too much flex during reflow. Maybe they're not properly supporting it, 
or they're building like too many in a panel. Who knows? Maybe it's cooling at a different rate because you have that that chip, and maybe the board underneath cools faster. Oh yeah, and it kind of like concaves down. Yeah, maybe something like that's happening. That actually would make a lot more sense of how much stress that would be under where just like a slight shock would pop it. And I could totally see that with a BGA, you know, if a certain, think of the BGA, if it cools from one corner differentially towards one of the other corners, all those balls start pulling on the other ones as it goes, as it, as it cools down. Yeah, that, I, I would not be surprised if that's one of the issues. Yeah. I'm going to throw money down on that one. <laughs> but go check out Chris Fix hyphen Germany. We'll put his link in the show notes. This dude has like insane repair skills. And he's got this cool tool where like this really cool BGA rework station. Because most time when you have a BGA rework station, it's basically hot air and you just have like directional attachments basically to blow the air correctly for the BGA. This person's got almost like a heat sink that he can stick on top of the BGA and then heat through the BGA to liquefy and pull the part off. Oh, that's cool. It's really cool. And he's probably using a board heater underneath too to help, but... Oh, I'm sure. Because it, it could pick it up perfectly straight up. It's really cool. Oh, so all the balls release basically close the to time. the same time. Yeah, that's nice. I'm watching him repair some traces right now. He's got like a BGA repair kit and these things are microscopic. Oh yeah. These are probably like 0.4 millimeter pitch parts and he's repairing the traces underneath, which are like three mil traces. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And, and that's, that's, you know, to your comment earlier, he's like, uh, he said he's working on high end GPs and stuff. That's the only thing that makes sense to put this kind of effort into. Yeah, these kind of repairs, it's like, because this graphics card is like $1,400. Yeah, yeah. So it's either stuff like that, really high-end, expensive, or stuff you can't replace anymore. This kind of stuff is is so crazy because, I mean, you and I have both done a decent amount of PCB repair in our careers. And I've never done anything to this degree where it's like, okay, I did the repair. I now have to solder it down and see if it works. Like, that's the part where it's like, Ugh. Yeah, because he does a whole, like, test suite for the board to it near the end of that video. And everything. And it probably works correctly. just fine, right? Oh, yeah. He was like, he's like, yeah, it worked fine. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's crazy. Graphics cards are absolutely, I don't know, they're fascinating how much technology is just crammed into this little space. Yeah, that you literally Lego block into a motherboard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just buy it, clip it in, and go, give me games. Yeah. Give me games. <laughs> Give me that Baldur's Gate 3. Actually, okay, I'm not a graphics card guy. What is the difference between GTX and RTX? Is there a difference between that? Yeah, yeah. Well, GTX was NVIDIA's older line, and they just changed it to RTX. Okay, they, so it's just a product line name. That's all it yeah. is. It doesn't indicate something other than age, I guess. When they started adding like the AI stuff to their GPUs, I think that's when they changed it to RTX. Oh, the what? Which is DLSS the, or whatever it is? Yeah, the DLSS technology that they're running because they call that RTS. Deep learning. Wait, what is it? Deep learning super sampling. Yeah, RTX is what they call 
their whole line of ray tracing AI technology. So that's when they added that, which I think was in the 2000 series. I'm pretty sure the 10,000 series didn't have that. And the 2000 was when they first started because my 2080 has DLSS one in it. Is every card by NVIDIA now RTX or is yes. it like, did they just, okay. So the GTX line doesn't exist anymore. No, the GTX was like the last GTXs were the 1000 series cards, like a 1080. Yeah, and then when the 2000 right. is when they added their, I'm doing air quotes here, RTX unquote technology package to the, the chip. That's when they just started, they got rid of GTX and then now it's all RTX. Got it. So like RTX 2080, RTX 3090 or whatever. Yeah. So they, they, okay, they have GTX and RTX, but then the the numbers after that are just basically, the, well, the first two digits are the series. So the 20, the 30, the 40. And then the, the two numbers after that are- How much money you want Yeah, how much money, right? Because <laughs> it's like the 06, the 07, the 08, and the 09, right? I might be wrong about the 06. Yeah, I think they start at 60, and then there's sometimes a 70, sometimes an 80. And then the 90 is like the flagship crazy one. Right, 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 right. Okay. I mean, as the numbers go up, the money goes up too. Yeah, arrow goes up. Okay. Well, there we go. We've decoded in NVIDIA for, for everyone. They're in the 4000 series now, right? Correct. Rumors is the 5000 series is coming out soon. Really? They don't give enough time for these cards to like marinate in the industry. <laughs> I think that 4,000 has been out for like three years now. No, no. Yeah. I think it's been out for less than that. When uh, 4,000 series release date, October of 2022. So oh, I'm not even wrong. a year. Yeah, not even a year. Oh, wow, I'm way wrong. Yeah. What did we talk about? Time dilation, compression earlier? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, the NVIDIA GeForce RTX 5000 release date is fall of 2025. So you have... Oh, wow, that's way farther off than I thought. Two more years of 4000 series. I think my 2080 can last that long. It seems to do fine. Yeah, it seems to be fine. Plays Baldur's Gate fine. Yeah, yeah, well, your your CPU's (laughs) kind of choking a little bit on that. That's one thing is I found a program I installed when I first built this computer... And it's, it's install date is like February 20, uh, 2015. Nice. So this Windows install is also that old. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, I remember okay. when I was running running XP, Windows XP, basically every like eight months you had to reinstall that thing. Yeah. It would just get really crusty. And then... <laughs> crusty. And then Windows, oh, when Vista hit, I skipped Vista. And then seven, I switched to seven and seven was great. And I think I only installed windows seven once. And then it was eight, 8.1 didn't do those. And then when 10 came out, I switched to 10 and yeah, I have never reinstalled this. It seems to be fine. Yeah. 10's no longer supported, right? For a little bit longer. Okay. This computer can't go to 11. Really? It literally can't turn it to 11. The CPU is that old. So there's a supposedly a certain piece of technology on newer processors that Windows 11 has to have. So you can't run it on older machines. 
That sounds a little hokey. Yeah, so this PC can literally not be upgraded to 11 because it won't let me. Huh, okay. It still gave me that stupid Bing Bar search thing, though. <laughs> Bing Bar. I think it's stupid. <laughs> I think Windows, they need to just realize that what they are and just keep it the same. Stop changing crap. Like, you don't need to change stuff. Well, you just know make, why, like, though. Really, really stable, awesome XP, and people will be happy. <laughs> well, the reason why is they have all those people to employ. Right, right. Yeah, you have to keep the devs happy. Oh, and the product managers, and yeah, gotta keep making Arrow go up. Yeah, but 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 if 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 Windows Eight <laughs> didn't teach them a lesson, like don't go and completely change everything. That's the thing about Windows is it doesn't change, or it, it's supposed to not. I don't know. People are probably yelling at me right now. So I'm actually, we talked about me getting a new computer a couple months ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. I still haven't yet. I've been hobbling this motherboard around for a while. Is that one still on the floor over there? No, I did. two weekends ago, I finally put it all back together, and it still worked. So Okay. <laughs> nice. No, that whole Southbridge area for the SATA just straight up doesn't work. <laughs> and actually, it looks like some of the PCI Express lines don't work either. Like the ones further down the board just straight up don't work either. You you have like a full on hardware problem with that. Yeah, something down, Failure. something in there is just not working right, which is really fun. Like, because I tried even like a, a live Linux USB stick to see if it was like the Windows install being weird. No, the Linux is just like shit's fucked up. So <laughs> I'm actually thinking about at this point of finding this exact motherboard. <laughs> Oh, I like on. new old stock. <laughs> well, just new because old stock, like vintage 2015. Yeah, vintage 2015. The thing is, like, it's all this one actually has solid state capacitors on it. It doesn't have electrolytics. That's pretty normal for motherboards nowadays. Yeah, nowadays, but back in 2015, that was like oh, that was probably magical, thing. right? Yeah, yeah, that was the new thing back then. The main reason why I want to find that motherboard, though is or similar so i can reuse all these parts because i'd love to have actually finally get another decent secondary pc to kick around when i finally build my new one so the snack machine snacky it has a better cpu than my gaming rig does really yeah it doesn't have a 2080 no GPU no it has it. my old 970 gtx in it gtx <laughs> <laughs> i'm wrapping it all back around yeah <laughs> yeah like I, I bought a new motherboard ddr5 ram all that good stuff for the like for my, snacky for snacky why well snacky was supposed to get my old gaming rig and the motherboard is a piece of joke in that thing so i couldn't just transfer it and I never got around to building a new gaming rig. So I'm like, well, I'm got to buy a motherboard and stuff for a snacky. I mean, why not donate your DDR? You're, do, you're on DDR3, right? Or are you yes, four in your three? Three. Why not just donate the three for snacky? Well, no new motherboard or CPU uses three. Oh, they don't support three anymore? No, 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 no. no. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, they haven't done that in a long time. I, did, I didn't know how backwards compatible it was. Oh, uh, no, none of it is. <laughs> <laughs> damn so yeah I definitely need to get around to build a new computer yeah it sounds like it's time and what initially started it was this thought I think on my new PC 
I'm actually going to run basically two M2 drives, which is like the new solid state thing that everyone's doing. Mm-hmm. One would be my Windows 11 install, and the other one's going to be probably a Linux install. So Linux would be the daily driver OS, and I'd pretty much just use Windows for anything else that just has to use Windows. Gaming? Video gaming. And I'm pretty sure Fusion 360 is like the only other thing. I just found out that Salie, the little digital logic analyzers, there's a full Linux build of the software. So oh, that's cool. You, you could always just use that for digital logic anal- analyzing. You don't have a Salie, do you? Oh, you do a, a macro. Yeah, I have a Salie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, apparently um, people can get Fusion 360 to run on Linux. Nice. It's not directly supported, but it works. Okay, what that tells me is it's not ready for game day with Linux. Fusion is great. I, we sing the praises of Fusion all the time, but it's still not a fully stable program, in my opinion. It still barfs fairly regularly. I still have to close it out. It still has some really goofy bugs that happen. And the Fusion team is fantastic at updating, and they make updates very regularly. In fact, I got a phone call from my local Fusion rep the other day that said that they're changing software updates to a faster turnaround time. Uh, so they're pushing updates, I think, every four weeks or every six weeks now, as opposed to once a quarter or something like that. So, the, I mean, they're, they're actively working on this, but Fusion is not the most stable thing I've ever worked with. Usually in like a long session, if I'm going to be working on it for a few hours, I will, it'll usually crash at least once for me. And it also doesn't play nicely with video games. We found out last week. Oh, yeah. No, no, I, ha- I was working on a box truck bracket and uh, we went to go boot up our normal Friday gaming session with Steven and I and a couple of other friends. And uh, I just had it. I had fusion on in the background and my game just crashed like four times that night. Yeah. And then the moment I, I'm like, I wonder if it's fusion. And Steven's like, turn that shit off. turn it off no more crashes if i'm playing fusion games it's like my computer's dedicated to fusion for the time that it's on (laughs) (laughs) it probably also doesn't help that i have like a you know eight-year-old cpu that's trying to play Baldur's gate and run fusion at the same time (laughs) yeah (laughs) threading all over the place right oh yeah well it doesn't know should it be worrying about your mage casting magic missile or like computing or the, the dimensions tolerance of your bracket <laughs> on my bracket. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this is a question I found on ask electronics on Reddit. Why do so many consumer electronics do not have reverse polarity protection? To be honest, I think that there's actually a really simple answer to that. And that's because it costs money to add, reverse polarity protection. And the key word is in that question, why do so many consumer electronics? Consumer electronics are built to a price point, and if they don't have to put reverse polarity protection in it, they won't. And on top of that, you're you're a little bit protected with the fact that most of the time, the power supply that comes with it is keyed in some way to prevent you from doing that. So to me, the answer to that is is fairly simple. It's those two things. However, one of the things I'm, I'm a bit curious about is other than me screwing up electronics, like me wiring things incorrectly or me designing things incorrectly, 
I can't think of a time that I've ever run into a consumer electronic product that I have destroyed or broken due to plugging it in incorrectly. So is this like a real, a huge issue people are running into? Yeah, I, I agree. Most consumer electronics, at least nowadays, actually run off like USB power. Yeah. Like they have a USB yeah. port on them that you power, like a micro or whatever, or B, whatever, whatever it is. Right. And air quotes, you can't plug that in backwards. Correct. There's part of people out there that can get can. But <laughs> but older devices, I say older, they still exist now, are like DC barrel jacks. And there are barrel negative and barrel positive. Mm -hmm. So I could see if you grab the wrong power brick out of your big box of power supplies that totally everyone has in the cabinet, and you just looked at the voltage and just plugged it in, I could see you blowing one up. I've never done it. I've always looked at like, because always on the label, those power bricks, it'll tell you the voltage, how much amperage they can provide, and it tells you the polarity. Mm -hmm. And usually on those consumer devices, it will say the same thing on it most of the time. That was a huge source of annoyance in the my last job doing guitar pedals because guitar pedals are center positive. I'm sorry, center negative, outer positive. That doesn't play nice with a lot of other gear, even in the same industry, like pro audio gear. Like you can get a keyboard or a DJ controller or blah, blah, blah. That is the opposite. So who invented the pedal? It's a long time ago and it has to do with if you have everything plugged in and your amplifier on and then you plug power in, you can send a pretty hefty pop down if you use center positive. But if you use center negative, there's less of a chance of that. And so it was based off of that and that propagated down and now that is the standard, which kind of really blows. Oh, I see. Like creating like a ground loop basically is what's going on. Because the center plug connects first. Yes, yeah, that, that's what I'm saying is that's why is because of that connect, the initial connection is it grounds first, ground. then powers yeah. on the output. Yeah. So it's ideal in that sense, but not ideal in terms of it doesn't match most other equipment out there. So even if you're a musician and you have multiple pieces of gear, you have to know what your gear requires. And that's just the thing. The majority of properly designed pedals i'm gonna i'm gonna use that specifically <laughs> do include polarity protection on them uh so e either a diode or if someone wants to get fancy they do the backwards pfet polarity protection but that's the whole thing that with that though is one that's not a consumer device typically but that's an environment that has reverse polarities all over the place it does but like i said on the properly design stuff. I mean, there's, there's, I can give you plenty of examples of where they don't have that and you can damage something pretty bad. At the same time, this gets really crappy too. There's some gear that uses barrel plugs that require AC wall warts. It's the same size barrel plug, but it's an AC adapter on there. And so you have to know not only is it DC positive, DC negative, or is this product an AC product? It's garbage. You know what's funny is the original NES front loader, Nintendo Entertainment System front loader, is AC power brick. Yep. Yeah. It's just a big old dumb transformer in the wall. Yeah. Yeah. In a plastic wad. Yeah. Hanging off the wall. 
Yeah. But but yeah, okay, so for consumer electronics, like you go down to you go down to Target and you buy, I don't know, an appliance for your kitchen that doesn't run on direct mains, let's just put it that way. Do you have to worry about polarity protection? My argument is you shouldn't have to at all. Shouldn't have to at all. Yeah. But you brought up an interesting thing is AC alternating current devices. Is there reverse polarity? This is a trick question. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a situation where there would be, where it would matter. It's where if the device has a switch. What do you mean device has a switch? So if it has a switch on, let's say you have a, your, your kitchen main mixer, right? That switch is supposed to be on the hot side of the circuit. Oh, Oh, okay. You know, I, I see what you're getting at. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because the whole idea is neutral. We're talking about U.S. standards here, which is its own craziness because it's all split phase. Uh, so it's all it's crazy. The rest of the world have it so simple. It's like you have two wires and that's it. <laughs> well, they have ground. Well, yeah. I mean, that's but they don't have to worry about this whole crazy split phase thing. Neutral, which is ground, but not ground. But not ground. It's yeah. white ground, not green ground. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, well, that's the whole thing is in U.S. systems, the neutral is literally hot. It has power on it, but it's tied to ground in the electrical box in your house. And that's the only place it should be tied to ground. Only, yes. Not in your product. <laughs> not in your product. But that, well, that's why your switch goes on the hot side on the, your product. So your AC, AC in itself is not, does not have a polarity, doesn't matter. But for product safety, it matters. Well, and, and ideally, if you have the money to do it, you break both neutral and hot. You have correct a double switch, and then it doesn't matter as much. No, that's 100% correct. I'm sure there's all kinds of regulations behind that that I don't know, but that's why two-prong plugs have a fat side and a thin side. Yes. So you can't plug hot into neutral. Correct. But that's why you see actual polarity on AC plugs and stuff because of the switching. Yeah, because there is a leg. The hot leg is defined as a thing. Yeah, because it's not connected to ground. It's the high side of the transformer. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Oh, split phase American wiring. Yeah, I mean, it works. It actually works really well. Yeah. So, yeah, favorite ways to do reverse bias protection. Yeah, I threw this question in here. Most time, this is like DC barrel jack territory. Because, like, if you make a device that's USB, you don't have to worry about this. You might have to worry about, like, someone plugging in AA batteries backwards. Maybe. Most of the time, the, you know, they go into some kind of a plastic mold that is difficult to put them in backwards. That's true. That Now, that certainly would not stop someone from doing it. Difficult doesn't stop people. Yeah, it doesn't stop. <laughs> My favorite way is the, the P-channel setup. Yeah. I think that's probably going to be most electrical engineers' favorite method. It rarely gets used because it's the most expensive. It's more expensive, but... The amount of energy you waste due to just reverse polarity protection is significantly less than just the classic slap a diode in there. Yeah. Well, as N series diode. Right. Because depending on how much you hate your connector or the power supply being plugged in, the other way is to put a shunt, a diode shunt. 
across the <laughs> input. I guess, yeah. That's like the dirtiest way of oh, doing yeah. it. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> but you don't lose any power. It's cheap, and it's one of three things happens. Your power supply blows up, Yeah. your connector melts, or your diode explodes. And after your diode explodes, you're still reverse, oh, yeah. and, and then, then your circuit reverse. goes. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so something's going to give in that situation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, the reverse PFET is kind of the best situation. The thing about what the PFETs is you can't, if this is a high-powered circuit, that's difficult. But at the same time, like, we're talking about consumer electronics here. It's probably not a high-power circuit. Yeah. There's a lot of, like, power control muxes and, and stuff. Like, TI makes a bunch of them. Analog does as well. A lot of them, they implement it with the PFET with, like, some maybe some smarter circuitry that's doing, like, current control as well, like making sure you're not overcurrent or whatever. But they all use a PFET in there. If you search for load FETs, or, or sorry, load switches, you can get some that claim, you know, zero drop, and they have active boost circuitry to make sure that they drive the gate a particular way such that you get the least amount of dissipation in the FET. But that's like the most expensive way of accomplishing this. Oh, yeah, way more. Yeah, it would all depend on what the, how critical is the product and how much the product is worth. If it's just like a garbage little thing that has to have reverse polarity protection, throw a diode on it and design around a diode drop. Yeah, the 0.7 volts. Do Arduinos have reverse polarity protection? On the... On the board itself, yeah. Um, I don't know. Let me go grab one. This is Arduino Zero. It does have a diode over there. I think it's an in-series diode. I guess we can look up the schematic. I'm pulling it up currently. So while you look that up, that is the first question, first engineering question for electronics uh, Chris Church ever asked me. Oh, reverse was, polarity protection? How would you implement reverse polarity to protect a DC barrel jack? You tell him slap a diode on it? That was the first one. And then I did the PFET channel stuff. Because actually, the funny thing is, I like two months before that, I just did a circuit that had reverse polarity in it. And so I had done all that like research and stuff on all the pros and cons. Got the job. <laughs> that was before Macrofab. Yeah, okay. So I'm looking at the schematic right now. They, they do have a reverse polarity diode on it. In series? In series, yeah. And it dumps right into the 5-volt regulators. Because I think the input on a Arduino is it's like 9 to 12 volts or 8 mm -hmm. to 12, something like that. So I guess they're giving a little bit of headroom for the diode. And then a 1-volt dropout par for that LDO. Yeah, yeah. It uh, looks like... I don't know what schematic. I, I, just, ha I just typed in Arduino schematic, so I, I don't know if this is the most up-to-date one. It's probably an Uno R3. I wouldn't surprise me. I, uh, they actually have the, the part number for their LDOs on that. I'm curious what the dropout is. Yeah, the dropout is 1.35 volts. Add 0.6 for that. So it's a total dropout of about 2 volts. So 9 volts down to 5 volts, is that's still plenty of headroom on it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah, Ardu Arduino couldn't, didn't want to put the extra expense of a PFET on there. <laughs> they don't have space. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, they couldn't even do a proper mounting hole, let alone a P 
PFET circuitry. To- we went over this last week. They could do a proper mounting hole. They could. They rechanged the whole board. Sometimes you just have to take a bite of the turd sandwich and just say, this is it. You know? You know what's funny? Wasn't the original Arduino designed in Italy too? Yeah. Yeah. At least I think it was. Yeah. Yeah, because they're made in Italy. I don't know if they're designed in Italy or were. Because Ferrari and Lamborghini are over there and they also make really weird design decisions. <laughs> It might just be an Italian thing. <laughs> sure. Isn't Fiat also Italian? I think so. I believe it is. Okay, now it makes sense why Arduino's mountain holes don't work. I It, it would be fun <laughs> to make an incredibly robust Arduino. Like, solve all the issues. They do exist. Do they? Yeah, yeah. There's, like, ones with, like, all I.O. protection and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, industrial Arduino is, like, the term you want to look for. I'm curious. I don't know if they fixed the pin change, because that'd be really hard to fix. And, like, I mean, back when Arduino was first coming out, it really sucked, because, like, the shields that were just, like, the protoboard shields were really expensive. But those protoboard shields are, like, a dollar now. So it's not really a big problem anymore. Yeah, you, you weren't joking. Industrial Arduino... Pulls up like a ton of stuff. In fact, there's one called Industrino. <laughs> That's a really hard <laughs> word to say. <laughs> but yeah, okay. There's options for this out there. You know, I, I should have known better. If you say something and then say Arduino after it, somebody's done it, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's the whole great thing about that platform. Oh, it's ubiquitous. Yeah. It's why Raspberry Pi, there's so many other single board computers out there that run Linux. But the reason why Raspberry Pi, because Raspberry Pi was not the first one to do this. The reason why Raspberry Pi won, I say win, in quote, they're the most popular, is because they had really robust software support and a lot of people joined that platform from the get-go for their mission statement. What was their mission statement? Like bringing computers to like the world and anyone can have a computer now because now it's like 35 bucks. I would not be surprised if one of the main reasons people jumped onto our, uh, Raspberry Pi is just because not just that they had good software uh, support, it's that they had really clear and easy instructions on here's how you turn it on and get Linux on it. That's true too. That hurdle of just the first thing you have to do is actually really, really big. It's kind of like what, what, what Parker talks all the time. It's like why we don't have to uh, moderate our Slack channel as much is because Parker put one hurdle in the way and that was just make a user login and that's enough to <laughs> prevent people. Well, like if you take the one hard thing away and make it easy, in other words, get Linux, put it on an SD card, put it on a Raspberry Pi and have good instructions on how to do that, that motivates people. I'd like to think that our community is as good as it is, is because groups of people thrive on the leadership kind of thing. Okay. We are positive individuals, even if like we dog a project or dog an idea on our podcast, we generally actually come up with some like positive things about it too. Sure. Maybe because we we have done our share of stupid 
projects that don't work out. I mean, we, we dogged a little bit on Arduino last week, but also said a lot of nice things about it. Yeah, but that's the whole thing is like, I think that attracts the people who are also like that. And the community feeds off that. And that's why we have such a great community around the podcast. No, we don't have a great community. We have the best community. Aw. Aw. Thank you, everyone out there that shows up in our Slack channel. Yeah. Our Slack channel rules. So let us know in the Slack channel. Maybe there's a different reverse polarity protection that we haven't talked about. Don't plug it in wrong. Yeah, plug. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to see, like, another way to do it. Even if it's like more, even more complicated, that would be awesome. Does a fuse count as reverse polarity protection? Yes. If it's easily to fix, it does guarantee it doesn't kill the device. A polyfuse. Generally, polyfuses are too slow to protect like microcontrollers and stuff. Hmm. But like a fast blow fuse does for sure. If you spec it right. <laughs> That's also the other thing. You got to spec it right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let us know in the Slack channel. Okay, we got a little bit left time left. So I have been looking to get a new 3D printer. I currently have a, it's a monoprice brand. The actual manufacturer is called Wanhao, W-A-N-H-A-O. I bought it like, I want to say... I bought it when Steven was still working at Macrofab. Oh, I remember the day you got it. Yeah. It's a one Hal D6 is the model. And it was $300. Okay. And I think over like the first like four months I had it, I put about, I I looked it up, all the receipts and like Amazon. I spent about 200 bucks in parts. And then like those four months kind of like tweaking it and making it work since then i've literally done nothing to this machine besides like put more filament in it and like clean the inside and like oil the rails but recently i've been printing and it's starting to skip steps so i think the belts are starting to wear out and it's got a nice burning smell every so often so some <laughs> connector in there is not happy with how hot I run it because it's also not designed to run as hot as I run it. I put like a the right hot end to go that hot and stuff, but like probably the rest of the circuitry is not really designed to run that hot. So I think it's about time to put this printer out to the pasture and let it go live its life somewhere else, probably a landfill. <laughs> but... Um, Because now since it's got like a burning smell every so often, it's probably not safe to like give it to someone to have them use it. Unless someone wants to like take it and find out what is the burning smell. Oh, someone will take you up on that. I promise you. And also for like the price of shipping this thing, you can get like an Ender 3, which is a way better printer than this thing is. (laughs) I'm looking at Ender 3 right now. It's 170 bucks. Yeah. Shipped. Yes. That's insane. Shipping this thing is probably going to be about 100 bucks. Yeah. Easy. So I've been looking to replace it, and I started looking around, and I don't really want to go through the whole thing of buying a printer and then having to upgrade it to where I need it anymore. 
I've been kind of spoiled with just how well this machine's been working uh, since I did all that work. And so I'm, I'm looking at like, I'm thinking about getting the Bamboo X1 Carbon. It's also 3X the cost that I spent on the Wanhao D6. It's pretty hefty. But it does solve a lot of the problems that I have with my current printer. It already prints the high temperature material really well. Like people say it prints polycarbonate like a dream. It also has the ability to load four different types of material at once. And a lot of people use that for different colors. So you can print like multicolored prints now. And there's actually a way you can put like multiple of those and it has like a combiner circuit and stuff. Like I think you can go up to like 16 reels, different materials. That's kind of cool. But I'm going to use it for what I use this printer for, which is printing engineering samples, basically. So I, I would load my polycarbonate, my TPU, which is like a rubberish material, and my PLA, and then probably a water-soluble support material. And I would never have to change filament unless I just reload it. What's the bed size on this? It's like 300 by 300 by 300 or something. It's bigger than... Because mine's 200 by 200 by 200. This is 256 all around. Are you looking at the right one? Uh, the Bamboo X1. Yeah, I think it was 300. I'm on the website right now. It says, uh, oh, I was the, looking at the physical dimensions. My bad. Yeah, 256 by 256 by 256. Okay, so it's still bigger than my current one. Yeah. So basically 10 inches all around. Yeah. I don't really run up on the physical dimension size of my current printer. But it would be nice to be bigger. But the cool thing about it is it's there's been a lot of advancements in 3D printing over the last six, seven years. What what's that whole thing I, I hear all the time with like the anti-vibration where it like it finds the resonances of the system? I don't know what that's it has a fancy name. Basically, like the acceleration is so much faster now. So you can get your print speeds a lot lower. I mean your print times a lot lower, I should say. Yeah, because the uh, the rapids in between stuff go yeah, fast. much faster. And a lot of that's probably not due to older units having bad steppers or whatever. It's probably just due to pure rigidity of the box that it's in. And tuning. Tuning of your controllers. Yeah. So I think this is what I'm going to go with. There's a lot of other options that are in this space as well. Bet you a lot of people are going to say what I should buy. For this? Yeah, 3D printing people, they don't have opinions on things, you know. <laughs> so yeah, probably get a bamboo. I don't know if I'm when I'm gonna get it yet. I'm probably gonna wait until that printer catches on fire and then have to like <laughs> throw it out of the garage. <laughs> so you're just going for the X1 carbon, not not the one that has the the multicolor head, right? No, I'm going for the multicolor one. Oh, really? Okay. Get the big one. I want to be able to be like, oh. I need to print a, or I need to make a rubber isolator for a radiator for my 1965 checker. Right now, I have to be like, okay, I go design it in Fusion, no problem. And then I go, oh, I have polycarbonate in my printer right now. Let me spend 15 minutes unloading it, loading in the TPU, and getting that all like cleaned up and ready to go. Whereas this machine, I would literally just click a button and say, I want to use TPU for this print. And it would just do it. So 
can you define what the material is in Fusion and then press go and the, the printer automatically selects and goes for it? Because that would be badass. That'd be really cool. I want, I, yeah, I need to figure out if that would work. Research that because that would be so awesome. I do want to try out is Fusion Slicer. Yeah. Because they have a whole 3D printing slicer built into it. I'd love to just try it and see how well it works or how terrible it is. <laughs> you never know. It might actually be really great. Yeah. You, do you have your, your printers networked or, or how are you actually getting files over to them? Yeah, yeah. I, I have, because uh, this is normally, the one I have is normally a USB printer and I have a Raspberry Pi I put into the base of it. So it's like all built in and it's running a print server called Octopi in it. And it, so it just shows up as a web address. I really like that. Like, and then my, I currently use Cura as a slicer and it basically will find Octopi on your local net and will be able to push it directly. So I don't have to like even touch the printer at all. Like I literally click print from my slicer and it starts up the printer because the printer's turned off most of the time. So it has a relay to turn on the 120 volts to the printer from Octopi. And then it turns it on, waits a while, connects to the COM port automatically, and then gets the file from, because it has like a print server, basic queue. And once everything's ready to go, it just starts it up and just goes. Nice. I literally made it as like a normal printer as possible. <laughs> See, that's the whole thing with, with using the slicer in Fusion. If you have to leave Fusion open, then it, it, we're going back to the complaints we had earlier. Now that's true. Yeah. I don't think it will control. I think it will just make your slicing file, and that will just go to Octopi. I don't know what Bamboo uses. I'd have to probably go learn a whole new system. But people tend to like them really a lot. We'll see. I'm not totally jumping the gun yet because my current printer does still work but i am i am not leaving the printer on to run prints overnight anymore ever since i started smelling some weird smells from it <laughs> i guess that's a good idea yeah i really just need to get new printers i, I need to cut that thing off cut, cut cut off that problem right just be done with it yeah but yeah it is three times the price of that my uh one how Kind of crazy. I guess it's technically a lot more printer. Yeah, you, you're getting more all around. Yeah, more everywhere. And this Wadhow D6 owes me nothing for how much I put it through. <laughs> it sounds like you've given it a hot lunch. Uh, for seven years. I think I printed something on it like, man, I want to say every couple of days for like the past six, seven years on it. I think I got it seven years ago. Yeah, it was in the new building at the Fab. I remember that. So 2016. That sounds right. All right. I have some notes here about the box truck stuff, but we'll talk about that next time. So that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. You should have seen it. Stephen Craig just like gave me the nod of like, it's time the end. We are your hosts, Parker Doman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steven and I know. Tweet us at Macrofab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, 
or emails at podcast at macfab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can find it at macfab.com slash Slack.